Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the History of England, episode 323, Europe 12 Absolutely Nations. Before I start, I have a podcast recommendation for you from the Agora Network. Now, I do love a good map. I have even, in my very small way, created the odd animated map for Edward III's campaigns. So, I am delighted to recommend the Map Corner podcast which is a celebration of maps, travel and cartography, hosted by map aficionados Royfield Brown and Claire Astbury. They have a range of guests for which I think the word would be eclectic, but all with a connection to maps and understanding the world around us or the places in our imaginations. Each episode features an interview, a quiz and an audio postcard from a listener. So find the podcast on any podcatcher near you and also join the Map Corner Facebook group where you can share and discuss maps. Give it a go, and I hope you enjoy it. OK, another general theme in the 17th century history of Europe is the continuing growth of the nation-state, as the unity of the Middle Ages was cast headlong, flaming from the ethereal sky down to the bottomless perdition that is the pizza of the framework of nation-states. It is a pizza which lets us throw on it, ladies and gentlemen, the ham of the military revolution and the pineapple chunks of absolutism. We have probably spoken of this enough, but expenditure on military technology grew increasingly and ruinously expensive. In our period here in particular, 
The cost of fortifications were enormous in Europe. The trace Italian fortresses, with star shapes and thick, thick walls designed to nullify the increasingly powerful artillery, the growing use of mobile artillery on the battlefield, the cost of mercenaries, of arms and armour. It is worth noting that while the conversation tends to focus on armies, the same expense and technological development applied very much also to sleeves. I'm sorry, to navies, to those countries for whom the sea was important, and to specific countries like the Dutch Republic and France, the cost of change was multiplied with the growth of warfare that integrated both naval and land forces. Though that's probably best left to the 18th century as a topic. Something to look forward to then. Europe was, of course, as the rest of the world was increasingly finding out, famously warlike, fractious and aggressive. And many rulers might have agreed with Machiavelli's dictum that war should only be the study of the prince. He should look upon peace only as a breathing space which gives him the means to execute military plans. Though I am told that in so quoting, I am perpetuating Machiavellian myths. My apologies to Niccolo. The result was an increasing need to squeeze more money from the state, and generally speaking, the technique adopted might be to centralise administration as much as possible, to try and remove local customs and liberties where possible, to stress the rights of the monarch to tax their subjects. At which point, I should probably move on straight to French absolutism and the age of absolutism. We can talk about Versailles and the Sun King and we'll all be in heaven. This is, after all, the era of Richelieu and Mazarin in France, centralising away like busy bees, and the likes of James I and VI in Britain, declaring, The state of monarchy is the supremest thing upon the earth. For kings are not only God's lieutenants upon earth and sit on God's throne, but even by God himself they are God's. Maybe that's the origin of that God-calls-me-God gag used by the super-powerful in business. Ha! Huh. Hoody-elbow. However, it would be a little bit early to do this, though we are maybe in the foothills of absolutism, and Louis XIV's long reign of 1643 to 1715 will be time enough to speak of it. But it is probably worth mentioning one Thomas Hobbes at this point, since although he was English, his writings would be influential in supporting absolutism, though Jacques Bossuet would be equally influential in France. Now, I've always thought us Brits are slightly embarrassed about Thomas Hobbes. Oh, we love talking about Locke and his ideas of toleration and government and David Hume, though we've been reminded both have blotted copybooks in the areas of slavery and racism. But the political and historical stuff, yes, we love them. But old Hobbesy, well, he's a bit more tricky. Because Leviathan, published in 1651, was out and out a plea for supreme power for the ruler. Hobbes's thesis essentially was that a strong ruler was absolutely essential to maintain order and prevent death and chaos. And that the subjects effectively gave their unconditional approval to the ruler 
to do whatever they liked to maintain order and protect the states. And when I say unconditional, that's it. Once you've, once you've given it, you've had your lot. No arguing or any of this tripe about resistance theory. Any immaterial things like, I don't know, natural rights. Pah! Elderberries, the lot of them. Hogwash. Pointless, immaterial tripe. There's a super famous image from the frontispiece of Leviathan, which has the image of a prince holding the sword of state, his body made of people who have climbed aboard to construct said body. Maintaining peace and order, that was the job of the ruler. Everything else was secondary, thirdary, zillionary. Hobbesy was a Wiltshire lad, as it happens, and should have been a dyed-in-the-wool royalist. So when Leviathan came out in 1651, effectively handing Oliver Cromwell carte blanche, royalists and those grieving for the death of their beloved martyr King Charles and nursing hankies dipped in royal blood were horrified. But Hobbes had no apologies to make. The only thing that matters was order. During the time when men live without a common power to keep them in awe, they are in that condition which is called war, where every man is enemy to every man. In such condition, there is no place for industry, no navigation, no arts, no letters, no society, and continual fear of violent death. And the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. But also it's worth noting that Europe is in no way a monolithic story of absolutism. And the range of governmental systems was far wider than phrases like the age of absolutism suggests. So at one end of the scale sits the totally republican and decentralised Switzerland, and at the other end of the scale, the out-and-out autocracies of Russia, the Papal States and the Ottoman Empire. There are republics like Venice, the United Provinces, and even Lithuania, Poland. Constitutional monarchies of varying degrees at various times in Scotland, England, Sweden. Absolutist states flourished in France, Austria and Spain, and possibly Prussia. The Holy Roman Empire, well, take your pick, depending on where you look and which little mini-state. There were miniature city-states to boot, so really, while centralisation and the attempt to maximise revenue for war and growth are without doubt common, it is not necessary to equate that directly and simply with absolutism. However, hang on to that theme of centralising and warfare, since, as a parting shot, it might be good to mention commerce, as part of the role of the state and its success. Mercantilism is a late 18th century term, but many of the principles that would drive it, that Adam Smith would complain about, were well in place by then. So, it was the role of the state to do everything possible to allow its commerce to succeed, in its regulations, penalising imports, encouraging exports, bringing in foreign experts to encourage home manufacturing, it's true that the approach varies from a very state-led approach to a purely private approach in the Dutch Republic and something in between in England. But economic growth was a core measure of success, along with bullionism, the perceived importance of amassing gold and silver. Now war 
might form part then of these goals to seize trade opportunities. Sir Thomas Munn was a writer on matters economics in Blighty, who died in 1641 and is described as one of the early mercantilists. He wrote, The ordinary means to increase our wealth and treasure is by foreign trade, wherein we must ever observe this rule, to sell more to strangers than we consume of theirs in value. It's a competitive business then, a zero-sum game, you might say, not the glories of free trade and mutual benefit and eternal growth, like blowing up a balloon until it bursts, of course, but enough of that. The economic and social context for all of this is one of a sort of pause. The price revolution, continuous inflation in the 16th century, continued for the first 20 or 30 years of the 17th century, but then it paused. Until it did, grain riots were a common occurrence, particularly in regions where grain was transported away into large cities like Paris or Rome. In the 1640s, a riot in the Papal States to stop grain going to Rome turned violent and led to the burning down of the Papal Governor's Palace. Population growth, pretty much universal throughout Europe in the 16th century, all but stopped after the first 20 years of the 17th, and this accounted to a degree for the slowing of inflation too. In many areas of Europe, rural crafts became more common prompted by population growth of the last century. It didn't occur everywhere, but it did particularly in the Netherlands, Belgium, England, the Rhineland, and in northern France, rural industry became not just part of a family's income, but a replacement for it. The German Sebastian Franck noted, as he travelled with wonder, that not only women and maids, but also men and boys spin. One sees contradictions. They work and gossip like women, yet are still vigorous, active, strong and quarrelsome people, the kind any area would want to have. The growth of rural industry promoted what some historians somewhere came to label proto-industrialisation, the growth of a proletarian workforce that would be one of the factors to enable industrialisation. And without wanting to summarise too horribly, the greater availability of credit and money that fuelled early capitalism, which was without doubt far from being a, being a simply British phenomenon. But the impact was very varied depending on the part of Europe you were in. So, whereas these early economic changes promoted social mobility in northwest Europe, particularly England and the Netherlands, the particular politics and economics of central and eastern Europe led very much in the other direction, with the reimposition of serfdom in areas of Germany and in Russia, for example. But we've not yet come to the great age of the agricultural revolution, so a detailed discussion of Jethro Tull and whether or not he invented the seed drill and drill husbandry, and indeed whether there was the traditional increase in productivity, we will have to wait for. I'm sorry, I know how much you want it. So why don't we turn to one of those nation-states then and find out how the ebb and flow of political history affected their fortunes. I was wondering what way to go in terms of order. Forgive me my prejudice, but just as the 16th century feels very much like a Spanish century in European terms, the 17th and indeed 18th feel like French 
centuries. This is evidently a mindless prejudice and not very historical, but that's the way it works for me. So, just to be contrary, let me start with Eastern Europe and then work my way over and we can finish up with France, which won't, we won't get to until next week. Just to repeat the standard apology, everything will be super minimalist and there is a map on the website. OK, so here's a quiz question to start off with. What was the largest state in Europe in territorial terms in 1600? Fingers on buzzers. Any takers? Poland, Lithuania is apparently the answer. This is a fab fact I have from a pretty reputable source, Norman Davis's History of Europe, but simply no way of checking it. So I offer it up to you for what it's worth. And in fact, later in my reading, I managed to find a different answer. So, you know, don't put it into the village pub quiz team. I think in our first section, I shall talk generally about Eastern Europe, but chuck into that pot, Sweden. Now, I know that getting it wrong and describing a place as Eastern Europe when it is in fact Central Europe or vice versa is a crime, similar to describing someone Welsh as English. Although there can, of course, be few crimes as bad as that one. So, apologies for any errors. And as to the inclusion of Sweden, well, it's just that they get involved in Eastern Europe. Generally speaking, I'm talking Poland, Lithuania, Prussia and Muscovy here. And generally, across these kingdoms, the social trend is towards the domination of the nobilities, with varying levels of partnership with their monarch, but essentially, even where monarchical power was absolute, as in Russia, monarchs co-opted the nobility into the state, despite conflicts along the way. The economic and legal privileges of the nobility were extended, posts and jobs provided in the bureaucracy and army Provisions passed hindering competition for the nobility from the towns or, or other means of production. Going back to the question then of who paid the price for this cooperation and the success of the nobility, the answer is very clear. It was the peasantry. In the 16th century, serfdom had been reintroduced in many places and that trend continued into the 17th century, particularly in Muscovy embedded in 1649 in the legal code of that year. The code contained over a thousand articles and it perpetuated and systematised serfdom. Repression of serfs meant that many peasants tried to find new lives on the thinly populated borders of the country, notably among the Cossacks living north of the Crimea. In 1670 and 1671, Resentment flared up into open rebellion as Stenka Razin led a revolt marked by hideous atrocities and equally hideous repression, and which led to Stenka's execution in Moscow by the end. Cossacks would form a crucial part in the history of Eastern Europe in the period. The name comes from the Turkish word for robber or adventurer, and hold that thought because the Cossacks, or a different group of Cossacks, will be back. Muscovy generally then, it might be said, had achieved its identity through this period. In the 16th century, Ivan IV, the dreadful Cad, or the Terrible, as he is alternatively known, had established the Muscovite state accompanied with, you know, a deal of slaughter, including a bloodbath at Novgorod, and establishing a proud Russian tradition 
of a state secret police force, this first iteration known as the Opricinia. He took on the boyars, the high nobility, and rewarded the lesser nobility in return to service for the monarchy. And then, by setting up the Patriarch of Moscow, he established the dependent nature of the Russian Orthodox Church, dependent on the Muscovite state, that is to say. He also extended Muscovy's borders and annexed the Khanate of Kazan in 1552, capturing Kazan amid great slaughter, would you believe, of the garrison and indeed the citizens of the city, as is practically obligatory, and sensitively raising a great Orthodox cathedral there for the edification of the Muslim Tatars and in celebration of his victory. After the party, though, for possibly inevitable reaction and the period of the early 17th century, known as the Dime of Troubles. During a period of instability and a search for their true ruler, Muscovy suffered an unholy combination of civil war, peasant uprising, Cossack raids and invitations to invade offered to Swedes, Poles and Tatars. At one stage, Moscow was occupied by a Polish claimant to the throne, who was also a scion of the Swedish royal family, Ladislav Vaza. From the crucible of an uprising and destruction of the Polish garrison finally emerged Russia's last dynasty, the Romanovs, in the form of one Mikhail Romanov. From 1619, Muscovy slowly but surely re-established itself and its independence after its troubles, particularly successfully by Alexei Mikhailovich in the mid-17th century. Two things are particularly important before the arrival of Peter the Great onto the stage of history. Russia acquired the left bank area of the Ukraine from Poland-Lithuania at the Truce of Androsova in 1667, and the importance of that acquisition was central in providing Russia with the economic powerhouse that would fund its rise as a great power. And secondly, the great expansion of Russia was pushing exploration from Siberia all the way to the Pacific. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The conflict with the other party at Andrusova, Poland-Lithuania, might be said to have defined the future of Eastern Europe. Poland-Lithuania had itself had come into being in 1569 under the pressure of expansion of Muscovite Russia. The two threatened parties, the Duchy of Lithuania and the Kingdom of Poland, came together to become equal partners in one new state, a commonwealth. The form of government was very much not the absolutist approach in Russia, though it certainly benefited the nobility on the way. Through regional assemblies which controlled a central diet, the nobility, or schlatcher, if I have pronounced that anywhere near correctly, controlled taxation and military affairs. The coronation oath they imposed on their kings and their legal right of resistance 
meant they could control their monarchs like managers on a contract. I can feel Charles I and Louis Fourteenth turning furiously in their graves, spinning like tops. For 80 years, Poland-Lithuania basically negotiated the potential bear traps, managing to extricate itself from the times of troubles in Muscovy, managing the stresses and strains of the Counter-Reformation with relatively little violence. Baltic trade grew. It avoided being sucked into the Thirty Years' War. Its monarchy, despite its elective nature, generally retained its authority. Often kings came from the younger scions of the Swedish house of Vasa, which could be a problem with sort of family conflicts resulting with the old country. But essentially, despite the later chaotic 18th century, the Commonwealth was a success. And so, with that in mind, the chaos of John Casimir Vasa's reign came as something of a shock and erupted on the unhappy inhabitants from a relatively cloud-free sky in 1648. Initially, the disaster came from the east of Poland-Lithuania, where lives its very own Cossacks. The Cossacks living along the river Dnieper felt aggrieved and put upon. Under religious pressure from the Catholic Counter-Reformation that threatened orthodox practice, and the complication of a large Jewish population, who were often leaseholders of the powerful landowning Polish nobles. So in line with the general trend in Eastern Europe, these Polish landowners were putting increasing economic pressure on the peasant Cossack classes, working often through Jewish tenants. The result again was, you guessed it, rebellion. The Cossack rebellion was blood-soaked, leaving a trail of murdered Catholics and Jews across Polish Ukraine. There are disputes about motivation, whether religious, economic and political, or all three. And of course many disputes about the numbers involved, but the number of Jews killed probably numbered tens of thousands in the Cossack Rebellion and maybe rose as high as 100,000 in the wars that followed. When they were on their last legs and Close to being suppressed, the Cossacks appealed to the Muscovites for support and the Muscovite invasion of 1654 to 1667 brought 13 years extra destruction to Lithuania and Ukraine. It also put the wind firmly up the Kingdom of Sweden and opened the eyes to an interesting opportunity to a German prince, the elector of Brandenburg, Prussia. Sweden, as we have heard, had a close connection to Lithuania-Poland through its ruling house of Vasa, and of course was also one of Poland-Lithuania's competitors for supremacy in the Baltic, which Sweden aimed to dominate. Sweden was a very different political proposition. It was a Protestant state by the start of the 17th century, with a well-supported monarchy, which had bought noble support by transferring to it legal privileges and church lands. Uniquely, though, Sweden's political setup included an estate of the peasantry, and its government rather oscillated between attempts to impose absolutism and constitutional monarchy, such as the so-called time of freedom at the start of the 18th century. In 1611, one of Sweden's most famous monarchs came to the throne, Gustavus Adolphus. 
he and his talented Chancellor Axel Uxensteiner created a more systematic bureaucracy, opened primary and secondary schools supported by the government, and promoted trade and shipping. But it also entered the Thirty Years' War. Wah, wah, oops. And was a winner in that brutal conflict. Hey! And took crucial territory from Lithuania, Poland, dominating the Baltic as a result. So, in the 1650s, its King Charles X was seriously worried by the Muscovite invasion of Lithuania, Poland, and intervened in what became known as the Swedish Deluge. And it brought yet more war to Poland-Lithuania and drove the Polish king John Casimir into exile. So at his side was a Hohenzollern, who was both the elector of Brandenburg and the Duke of Prussia. Prussia had been part of the old Teutonic state, which had lost its mission when the pagans of Lithuania inconveniently converted to Christianity. In the 16th century, one Albrecht von Hohenzollern of Brandenburg made Prussia a fief of Poland and managed to dismiss the Teutonic order. Then he purchased the legal reversion of Prussia, so that the Hohenzollerns of Brandenburg would inherit Prussia if it came to pass. And it did, indeed, come to pass and turned out to be a very clever move and came to fruition in 1618. From 1640, then, Brandenburg, Prussia, was ruled by Frederick William, who would become known as the Great Elector. The Great Elector saw in the Swedish deluge an opportunity, whether to make himself King of Poland or achieve independence of his duchy from its Polish overlord. And having backed the right side, obviously a key talent, in 1655, Frederick William was in physical control of Warsaw. All of this sounds terrible news for Poland-Lithuania. But by 1660, rather remarkably, she had reasserted itself. The Muscovites and the Swedes had been expelled. A treaty was concluded at Oliva in 1660, which brings our story to an end. True enough, Lithuania-Poland had survived and re-established itself. But it had lost much of Ukraine to Moscow, you might remember. It was therefore much economically weakened. Plus, it now had a much more powerful neighbour on its eastern borders, i.e. Muscovy. Just to add fuel to the fire, it now had a powerful new and aggressive neighbour in Brandenburg, Prussia, and Sweden was the most powerful nation in Northern Europe. Strategically, you wouldn't pick it in a computer game, I don't think. And indeed, the 18th century would not be kind to Poland. Now, you know when I said that Lithuania-Poland was the largest country in Europe in territorial terms, according to Norman Davis? Well, I now read this is in fact disputed, and that that crown should in fact be given to the Ottoman Empire. After all, it stretched into the Balkans, east to Persia, and all the way along the North African coast. So, answers on a postcard and all that... In the last round of Europe episodes, back in the mist of time when small furry creatures were still and all that, I think we talked about the 16th century surge in the Ottoman Empire, which took their conquests through the Balkans to partition Hungary and up to the very walls of Vienna, which extended their power throughout the Mediterranean, seemingly sweeping all before them. 
although Venice clung grimly onto Crete and Malta famously resisted siege. And although the Spanish naval victory at Lepanto in 1571 prevented the Med becoming a Turkish lake, it did not stop the Ottoman advance. Tunis finally fell to the Turks in 1574. The success of the Ottomans had been built on, amongst other things, a superb bureaucracy, mighty economy and military innovation, supported by extraordinarily efficient logistics. And in the late 17th century, their enemies in the east, the Safavids of Persia, would collapse, and so once more the famous Janissaries and Sultan's army would threaten the security of Central Europe. Ottoman success led to Christian nations beating a path to their door, notably the English looking for allies against Spain, but also France looking for allies also against the Habsburgs. Turkish culture was all the rage, and there was a craze for Turkish styles and artefacts, Europe's first round of Orientalism. Istanbul was one of the two biggest cities in the world, at about 700,000 people, and I await your guesses for the other candidate for biggest world city with interest. But although it might possibly, perhaps, maybe, be hindsight, by the 17th century, cracks were beginning to appear in the magnificent edifice. The sultans had become increasingly remote from reality and they rarely left the confines of their court. There was no clear line of inheritance in Islamic law which led to a vicious scuffle for power every single time a sultan died. And since the extended family of the sultan was all kept within the confines of the port, new sultans had little experience of rule. As a result, real power and decision-making lay with the Grand Vizier, a post that became heritable, and political as well as military power moved to the military powerhouse of the Janissaries. As time went by, the magnificent bureaucracy became increasingly corrupt, with regional officials ruling their provinces as personal satrapies rather than as part of the whole. The ambitions of the vizier Kara Mustafa Pasha to revive the Ottoman conquest of the central European Habsburg's lands would face a major challenge to get off the ground. As far as the imperial Habsburgs themselves were concerned, the central European branch of the family, that is, rather than the Spanish version, the earlier 17th century was dominated and consumed by the Thirty Years' War. So let's just hold on to that thought and we'll come back to it. Under Rudolf II, the emperor from 1576 to 1612, and I do hope you're enjoying the blizzard of dates, by the way, a traditional complaint of schoolchildren. The imperial court of Prague was one of the cultural centres of Europe, Rudolf had assembled a massive art collection and a dream team of talent in Kepler, Bruno, Brahe and one Archimboldo of whom I had not heard but whom I told is the founder of surrealist painting. Hmm, fancy. And there was also a famous opera designer and inventor, Cornelius Drebner. Nonetheless, the tradition that the Habsburg Empire was a poorly politically integrated bag of bits was not far in the future, an entity held together mainly by culture more than political unity. Which brings us to Italy. Now, one of the historical arguments about 17th century Europe 
is whether or not it could be considered a century of crisis. Economic and population slowdown, religious conflict and division, persistent plague, a never-ending stream of wars, including the big one, the Thirty Years' War. The debate runs back and forth, and the concept is often sometimes still used, or a competing framework that sees the century as a search for stability. I'm never sure whether these general framework things are useful, because they're rarely able to incorporate everything. But the concept of a crisis does seem to have some resonance, especially with regards to poor old Italy. For a long time, it seems to me that we have been used to thinking of Italy as the European powerhouse of culture, philosophy, industry, renaissance, international trade. Florence, Venice, Rome, Genoa, Milan, darling. These are the names that conjure up so many of the glories of Europe. Now, I'm not saying that is completely at an end. Far from it. This is, after all, the age of Bernini, who I am told was a character not entirely without talent. But already the centre of power in Europe had moved westwards and was moving swiftly northwards too, to Spain and France and the Dutch Republic. Why that should happen is up for grabs and probably too complicated to debate here, though once again I'm not sure how useful general frameworks are. Religion has been advanced as an explanation before, but I believe is generally now considered a busted flush. The growth of international colonial empires is a rather more convincing theory. But either way, the 17th century was hard for the Italian peninsula. Economic slowdown was marked in what had been the powerhouse of European industry, although silk remained a growth industry in Italy, most of the others struggled. Wool manufacture, for example, fell by 50% in the first decades and had all but disappeared in Italy by 1650. The putting out system and the growth of rural industry was not taken up to the extent that it was in northwestern Europe, or at least not outside Lombardy. Guild restrictions, higher labour costs, high taxation and greater competition from outside crippled Italian industry to a low point by 1650. Economic downfall and serious plagues meant that population fell in major cities by up to 50% in big cities such as Milan, Naples and Genoa. In the south, over-exploitation of land badly depleted soil fertility and led to deforestation. Spanish involvement in the Thirty Years' War sucked taxation and resources from the Kingdom of Naples, the King of Spain also being the King of Naples and Sicily, of course. Just to continue the catalogue of woes, although the Church seems to have increased its influence over social and economic life in Italy, its temporal lands in the Papal States were controlled by rival Italian families away from Papal control. But more, the Catholic Church's influence over European political and even in some cases ecclesiastical affairs, was a shadow of its medieval memory. Gallicism, the desire from France to control its own clergy, ate away at papal influence, and Louis XIV could safely ignore papal pleas not to persecute the Huguenots. The papacy sat by, unable to really influence events in the Thirty Years' War. Even mighty Venice began to slip from view, Constant conflict on the Med, the Adriatic and northern Italy led to rising costs of investment in business and decreasing income from it. The expansion of the Spanish, Portuguese and Dutch colonial empires 
gave an alternative supply route to the east, and so the prices of its staple money earner of spices began to fall. The English ambassador to Venice in 1600 saw the writing on the wall. In the matter of trade, the decay is so manifest that all men conclude within 20 years' space the city will all but collapse. He happened to come from Halifax, obviously. He remarked that the huge thousand-ton merchant ships, once so common in Venice, were now no longer to be seen. Before the end of the century, Italy would be famous more for Western travellers completing the Grand Tour, coming to marvel at the wonders of the classic and medieval world of Italy, buying up artefacts, taking them back home to create collections such as the British Museum, the Fitzwilliam at Cambridge and the Ashmolean at Oxford. So while we're on the rather depressing end of the stick, we should turn to Spain and Portugal. When we left Spain, Philip III had taken over and started vigorously pursuing the war against his recalcitrant subjects in the Dutch United Provinces. It was a symbol of things to come that it did not go well, and his ambitions to start with a big win started, in fact, with a whimpery loss. At the time, people would probably have had no idea just what was about to happen. After all, Spain and Portugal seemed at top of the world, looking down, in the words of Karen, on creation. All the wealth of the New World and the magnificent of their royal court and Europe's most powerful dynasty. Spain's fall from power and European preeminence was nippy, and so thorough that Spaniards were given to wonder if the short period of their triumph was nothing more than an illusion. With hindsight, of course, the signs were there, with Philip II's continual bankruptcies, which went on through the 17th century, and with the divisive dominance of Castile over the other Spanish regions, which they resented. Castile has made Spain, and Castile has destroyed it, wrote a contemporary. Under Philip, the Aragonese had revolted, and under continual pressure of war, the pull of disintegration continued. 1640, Portugal restored its monarchy and fought to restore its independence to boot in a war that went on through several stages of warfare, frontier conflict and renewed warfare, until finally the Treaty of Lisbon in 1668 brought the conflict to an end with Portuguese independence. From 1640, the Spanish dealt also with a Catalan revolt, and not the last one by any means, which took until 1659 to quell and led to the loss of Spanish territory north of the Pyrenees to France. Meanwhile, the economic exhaustion and collapse evident by the end of Philip II's reign continued, was not helped by the attitude of the nobility, who were resistant to the idea of commerce and the arrival of new blood into their ranks. When that new blood did manage to creep in, they also expected to live off rents and landed income once they'd made it, rather than continue to engage in commerce. They were also obsessed with purity of blood, which in this context meant having no Jewish and no Muslim ancestors. And that same attitude led to the expulsion between 1609 and 1611 of over 200,000 Muslims and Moriscos to North Africa. As population fell in Spain, this helped the economy not one jot. Despite population decrease, Spain, like the rest of Europe, experienced an explosion of vagabondage and what the Spanish called 
the Picaro, rogues and vagabonds living outside the margins of settled society, and which led to a genre of literature called the Picaresque. Now, I, gentle listeners, am guilty of appalling ignorance. I had always rather assumed that Picaresque was just an odd way of saying picturesque, which of course is not the same thing at all. As you probably know, since you are less ignorant than I, picaresque literature celebrated the lives of brotherhoods of beggars, creating their own societies on the margins, the sort of rules and hierarchies we talked about in England with upright men and the language of begging. It's more recently been pointed out that Spain's decline was not quite the vertiginous collapse beset with governmental incompetence as has been traditionally presented. It was once seen, for example, that the king's reliance on favourites and courtiers was a sign of incompetence. Now it's recognised that one man could not cope with such a complicated empire and had to share the jobs around. But nonetheless, Spain continued to get herself involved in furiously expensive international conflicts, which continued to ravage its economy in both Spain and Naples and suck up its income from the colonies. In 1604, Peace was agreed with England, but the war with the Dutch wandered on until 1609 when a truce was agreed, which lasted for 11 years. A truce because the Spanish crown had not yet given up. And although the southern Netherlands were firmly in Spanish control, the increasing wealth of the Dutch Republic was way too juicy a prospect to give up easily. So, war started again in 1621 with a fresh assault from Spain. This time it was in essence a global war. As we'll come to next week, the Dutch Republic had used the truce well to throw off the shackles of the Spanish blockades and both create the start of a global empire and take the war to Spain and Portugal in her colonies. War was carried to the East Indies, Brazil, Macau, the Philippines, as Europe continued to export the violence of her civilization and society there's a contentious sentence we'll come back to later. The war went badly for Spain, punctuated by events of major significance such as, at last, the capture of the entire Spanish treasure fleet in 1638, which must have made the English absolutely green with envy, given how hard they tried and failed to do that very thing. But more significant was the defeat of a Spanish armada by the Dutch Admiral Trump, at the Battle of the Downs. The defeat has been seen as confirmation of the end of Spain's status as the major Atlantic naval power. The Eighty Years' War between the northern provinces of the Low Country and Imperial Spain finally came to an end at the Treaty of Munster in 1648, part of a series of treaties known to history as the Peace of Westphalia that brought the Thirty Years' War to an end. OK, so that brings us to the threshold of said 30 years of war and to the glittering cultural centre of the new Europe, to France, which we shall talk of next week. Until that time, thanks to, for listening. Thanks for all your views and comments. Good luck and have a great week.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com.